This radio program is PG-13. Parents strongly caution some material may be inappropriate for children under the age of 13. Send me Jesus' mission was to comfort those who mourn, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to captives, and open prison doors for those who are bound. For those who want more than status quo Christianity has to offer, Blazing Grace Radio begins now. And here is your host, Mike Janung. Hey, Mike Janung here, and welcome back to Blazing Grace Radio. Glad to have you along. And we're going to be talking about youth and pornography today and how we can take some action steps when it comes to youth because most men who come to us for help, I will share that the average age that they first got their exposure of pornography was age 8. It's not when they're 30, 40, 50 year olds. So if we can, we can start making a difference, if we can nip this in the bud, we have to start talking to youth about these issues and of course, there's also a spiritual battle involved, very intense one to keep this away from youth. So a couple statistics, and then I'm going to introduce my guest. 94% of kids will have seen pornography by the age of 14. 70% of Christian youth pastors have had at least one teen come to them for help in dealing with pornography in the past 12 months. One youth minister stated that of the kids who come to him for help, all who are from Christian families, are addicted to porn. Many teens are sexting either on the receiving or sending in of sexually explicit images. And 62% of teens and young adults have received a sexually explicit image. And then 64% of youth pastors have confessed to struggling with porn either currently or in the past. So part of the problem here is you have youth pastors themselves who are in bondage to this stuff, raising up the next generation. And then when you have all the numbers showing that two-thirds of Christian men have this problem, that's a lot of fathers raising kids. And that's going to have a profound effect in the home. So and then the the number that always grieves me the most is when I see that 75% of youth are walking away from the church. So today we're going to be talking with Rebecca on how we can take some action steps. And she did that made a difference. And Rebecca is from Tucson. She is married and has three children. She is currently hosting a prayer call for wives whose husbands have been impacted by sexual addiction. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. So the reason I invited Rebecca on is because several months ago, I think it may be back in May, I don't remember, but she went to her school where her kids go and to talk to them about the issue of porn. So, Rebecca, what is it that sparked you to do that? Well, we had a situation come up with our 12-year-olds. Um, he came home from school one afternoon And he was very eager to start working on his paper that he was typing, which should have been a clue um, because he hates doing homework. 
Um, but I got him set up to work on this paper and I had a monitor um, turned so I could see what he was doing so he wasn't unattended on the computer. And as soon as I walked out of the room, he got up and he turned that monitor. And so I knew that he was trying to hide something. Um, I walked right back in um, seconds later and he had just Googled sex. And um, after a brief conversation, um, of course, his initial response was, oh, that just popped up. And I said, no, <laughs> I don't believe that it did. Um, but eventually he came out and said that a kid at school had told him to look that up. Hmm. And do you know if that was his first exposure at the age of 12 or there had been more going on before that? Well, over the course of the next few months, we discovered that he had had exposure. Um, he had attended a different school um, when he was younger and during the after school program, they let the kids use the computers. And even though it, they were school computers that supposedly had safeguards, um, he told us that he had viewed um, pornography on them and the adults, you know, were oblivious to the fact that that was going on. Mm. So, so is that the school that you went to to talk to about that issue? Actually, the school that he attends now is a different school. And so when I um, when this came up, I wanted to address my concerns, obviously, right away with the principal. Uh, one being that, you know, if there's kids encouraging other kids to look this kind of stuff up, that I thought she should be aware of it. And two, I knew that there really wasn't any kind of a policy about cell phone use um, for the students. And technically, they weren't supposed to have their phones out during class time or, you know, at school period. But kids will be kids and they had them out on breaks or, you know, lunch um, time, that sort of thing. And so knowing that, my concern was that there might be some things that he was even viewing at school, even though he doesn't have a phone. So I called the principal to schedule a um, meeting with her, and she was very open to that. We sat down, and um, I just told her the situation about what happened with my son and my concerns about the phones. And her response right away was, we need to get a policy in place so that um, there aren't unmonitored you know, phones or you know, Internet access at school. Mm. And if I remember right, did you tell me there was no filters on their system and she wasn't aware of that? That was um, a subsequent conversation. But, yeah, the, in that um, initial conversation, we discussed, you know, what the safeguards were in place for the computers, and she didn't know. Oh. And so um, she was new to her role as the principal there. That um, this, That was her first year in that role, and so that was something that, had never been um, discussed before. And I think she assumed that everything was as it should be. Um, but she looked into it and she came back and said that she didn't believe that there were safeguards in place. And so um, eventually they did um, get that sorted out. And I tested it out for them um, just to make sure, typed in a few different searches of things that my son said that he had searched for previously, and um, it worked. So their their safeguards um, were doing their job on the computers. Mm. 
So are you saying their computer system had wide open Internet access? Well, she didn't know for sure, um, and I didn't test the computers at that time, so I can't say for sure, but she didn't feel confident that they were as secure as they should be when we had that initial conversation. So that was something that was implemented um, over the summer. And then the phone policy, she actually changed um, the requirements so that kids, um, if they did bring a phone to school, they had to check it in with their teacher. Hmm. and um, their teacher would hold on to it till the end of the day, and then they could have it back. Um, and even their after-school program um, was the same. They they weren't allowed to just have their phone on them. Hmm. Is this a grade school, like zero to sixth grade? I'm at zero. First to sixth um, grade? It actually goes from kindergarten through eighth grade. It's a private Christian school. Oh, I didn't remember that part. So a Christian school had wide open or at least not guarded Internet access is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know, again, to what extent um, it wasn't guarded, but the fact that she wasn't sure, that was concerning to me because that, you know, as a parent, you you hope that the people who are in charge of your children know um, you know, that they're protecting them. And the fact that there was even a question about that was a concern. I had had some conversations with his teachers in the past um, about it, and they assumed that, you know, there were safeguards in place. Mm. And when you assume that there are safeguards in place, then you let your guard down. And from my experience, no matter what the safeguard is, there is no substitute for supervision. And so um, that's also what I tried to encourage um, the teachers as well as the principal, but especially with my son who has ADHD, um, he needs supervision anytime he's on a computer, even if there are safeguards um, in place. Because as we all know, there's always ways to get around things if you really want to. Mm. Do you feel, do you have a feel for the youngest age that they're carrying around smartphones there? Um, I had my kindergartner last year come and tell me a kid brought a iPhone to school in his class. Now, I don't know if it had access, you know, to the internet, you know, if it was a parent's old iPhone, I wasn't real clear on that or if it was a new one. Um, but he did bring a real, um, iPhone to school. I think it may be a little bit less, uh, private school versus a public school, I know it was very commonplace for all ages um, to have phones at, at the public school. Um, but I, one thing that was really surprising to me is that after this new policy went into place, that there were no parents who gave any pushback. I was expecting um, the principal to say that she, you know, got some flack, you know, from parents for it, and none of them did. So they were all in support of it, which was really great. Mm. <clears throat> so, Rebecca, what is your take on giving a six- or a seven-year-old a smartphone? Is it a good thing, bad thing, doesn't matter? <laughs> oh, definitely a bad thing. Um, if nothing else, they just they don't need that much access to screens. Um, we did a 30-day screen deta- um, detox um, at the beginning of the summer last year. And my five-year-old at the time um, 
you would have thought we had cut off his right arm. Um, <laughs> he really struggled. And we, we limit his screen time. He does not have his own phone. He um, plays on the Nintendo Switch um, in the afternoons after school for 15 to 30 minutes. And then we might have some, you know, watching TV time after that. But it's less than two hours a day, which in my opinion, I think is fairly conservative and knowing what um, some other kids do. And so um, I was I was surprised, actually, at, at how hard it was for him and for, you know, the first couple of weeks. Then he got into a groove and he, he was okay. Um, but it just was an indicator to me that it had more of a grip on him than I, I thought maybe it would. Um, it also gave us an opportunity um, to just explore some new things um, that we had never um, done before. So even listening to podcasts for kids, um, my oldest discovered that he loves reading um, and he's never really been a reader. And now he will read for hours if mm. you let him. Um, so there was a lot of great outcomes of doing that. But yeah, I don't think there is any good reason for a six or seven year old to have their own smartphone. And in fact, our oldest who is 12, um, I'm not sure when he's going to get a phone, no. <laughs> but if he does, it will be very limited. Um, you know, it won't have access to the internet. That's he, he can't handle it. It's just, he's not there yet. Mm. Do you think a lot of parents assume because whatever, they have guidelines at home that their kids going to go to school and not get exposed to that stuff? Probably. I think in general, I think most people just don't realize how accessible it is. You know, I think they think, you know, my kid's not going to seek it out. This is um, a conversation I had with my son's um, first grade teacher this year because they were going to be using computers more. And he said, oh, well, you know, they're going to be they won't be able to go to other sites because, you know, they have to follow these instructions and this is where they go. Um, to get to the program that we're going to be using. And um, and that may work for most first graders, but sixth, seventh graders, you know, eighth graders, as soon as you turn your back, they're going to be doing something different. Um, and in fact, my oldest son's um, teacher told me that um, she discovered the kids were playing games, you know, when they should have been doing a research paper. Mm. And this is, again, where the supervision has to come in. If they, you know, if they're not supervised, there's, even if they're not looking at porn, they're likely going to be doing things that they're not supposed to be doing. And I think that's just kind of human nature. Did you experience, experience much in the way of spiritual warfare going through all of this process? Um, you know, to be honest, Mike, I don't remember so much the spiritual warfare of it. Um, I do remember, though, um, being in the parking lot at the school and seen a rattlesnake in the parking lot. And we live in the desert. There's rattlesnakes around, but we live in town. And so I don't often see rattlesnakes where I live or certainly at my kid's school. And it just um, felt like such a correlation, you know, to what was going on in that we, we take our kids to school. We take them to a place where, you know, we think they're safe and, there's a rattlesnake in the parking lot, you know, and, and the internet is no different. 
Um, you know, it seems like such a safe thing. It's, you know, a tool that we can use for learning, but there are dangers, very serious dangers lurking just around the corner. And I think that just spoke to me of how we need to be on guard and um, not assume that just because we're at a Christian school or, you know, a school period that our kids are safe. Mm. You know, in Christian media, we hear phrases like safe for the whole family and we hear phrases like positive and encouraging and do you think anything, any of that kind of, I don't know, if marketing slogan or all that we're bombarded with about keeping everything positive and tolerant has an effect on all this? Um, you know, I think if nothing else, it just keeps it off the radar. Um, you know, like I said, I don't think a lot of parents are really thinking about their kids seeking this kind of stuff out. And I'll be honest, even though I've gone through my own, you know, personal experience with my husband who's had um, sexual addiction, my son, I really thought was fairly innocent, um, in part because we were so careful at home about what he was exposed to. And really, he doesn't go to friends' houses, you know, where he's unsupervised, um, that sort of thing. And so I think I, I was really taken aback at the fact that he was able to access that um, at his previous school under adult supervision on school computers. Mm. And so, you know, even, you know, with my background and being more aware of these dangers, you know, even I was surprised at that. Mm. Well, let's shift the conversation a little bit. You lead a wives group. Talk about yes. what you see the women going through. What kind of struggles do they have? You know, our group is pretty varied. So, um, I mean, some of the women are going through the loss of their marriage. Some women are going through just a season of discovery and just learning, you know, what their um, husband has struggled with and um, they're trying to process it and all of the emotions that they feel as a result of it. And then some are, you know, a little bit further down the road and um, just trying to deal with healing um, after, you know, after discovery. And um, yeah, it's, it's been really encouraging for me. Um, I had originally been a part of the group years ago, I think 2000, um, gosh, was it 2011, somewhere around there, um, or 2012, sorry, when I originally connected with Blazing Grace. And I was just a member of a group and then eventually started leading um, a prayer group and, it, and then got to a point where my husband and I were in a better place and um, I didn't feel that need um, to be a part of uh, a group like that. And then fast forward to a few years later and my husband relapsed and I was feeling very isolated and um, hopeless. And um, that was actually what got me um, reconnected to the women's group. And so I came back as just a participant and that was really hard um, coming from a place of, you know, I had been a leader at one point and encouraged encouraging women with my story of 
hope and healing and restoration. And then um, to have that setback was um, somewhat humiliating, I think. Um, But God brought me through that. And um, that was a little over a year ago that I started um, back on the prayer calls as a participant. And then eventually the opportunity came up for me to lead the calls and um, I felt like that was the right thing to do. And I'm, I'm grateful that I have because not only has it helped me um, to continue to have those connections and to pray with other women who understand what I'm going through, um, but it's also um, helped um, other ladies as well. Mm. <clears throat> you talked about a season of discovery. Talk about how it affects a wife when she discovers her husband's porn issues? Wow. Um, Well, it's kind of like getting the rug ripped out from under you, I would say. Um, You just, at least from my experience, um, the reality that you think you know um, and the husband that you think you know, you suddenly discover that that's not real. And... um, yeah, it's 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 hard to put it into words even. Um, but I I just remember um at you know, the very first time I just remember shaking and crying and um just this uncontrollable anxiety. Um it yeah, it's it's like nothing I've ever experienced before. Mm. From what we see a lot of the time the wives get left out of this conversation, which is why I try to have wives on quite often on this program to help people see that this is very traumatic to the woman, and you use the word season of discovery, so that sounds like that can take a while to process. Is that true? Absolutely. Um, I think it's kind of like going through the whole, the stages of grief, almost. You know, you um, you have the shock and then um, maybe even um, denial of, you know, that this is even really happening or, you know, and I don't remember all the stages of it, but I just remember it being, um, it's definitely a process. And um, a lot of my healing was connected to where my husband was and, and how he was responding to me and, um, you know, if he was working on his healing. And so even after the discovery, if um, the husband is in a, in a place of not wanting to work on it or even acknowledging that it's real, that can kind of prolong, I think, that trauma um, that occurs in the beginning um, because it, it really is interconnected, um, the healing of the wife and the husband. Mm-hmm. Rebecca, this has been great, and we have about a minute left. And But first, I want to say that to our listeners, what I love about Rebecca's story is she went and took some action steps that made a huge difference on an entire school. And I wanted you all to hear that because you can make a difference. You don't have to be some kind of expert. You just show up and let God work for you. So, Rebecca, with 45 seconds, anything you want to say to our audience? Um. I would just say that prayer is powerful, um, praying for your kids, praying for your spouse, praying for um, the people who are in charge of your children. That's the most important thing you can really do um, to support and, and help them. 
And I couldn't agree more. And, and if anyone wants to show up at your group, any wives, what when is what time is your group run? We have a call every other Sunday at 5 p.m. And the next one will be a week from this Sunday. And then you can email us at email at Blazing Grace if you want to get in touch with Rebecca. So I want to thank you, Rebecca, for showing up and for sharing your story and what you've been through. And thank you, listeners, and we'll see you next time. Do you want to be free? Blazing Grace is a nonprofit international ministry for the sexually broken and the spouse. Please visit us at blazinggrace.org for information on Mike Janung's books, groups, counseling, or to have Mike speak at your organization. You can email us at email at blazinggrace.org or call our office in Chandler, Arizona at 719-888-5144. Again, visit us at blazinggrace.org. Email us at email at blazinggrace.org or call the office at 719-888-5144.